Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We take a look at the new 2019 cars from Renault, Toro Rosso and Haas. Formula 1 2019 is officially underway. While we haven't seen any on-track action yet, Renault, Haas and Toro Rosso have all revealed their new machines, the first we've seen to the modified aerodynamic regulations. I'm your host, Ed Shaw, and joining me first is our technical editor, Jake Boxer-Leg, aka JBL as we'll refer to him. So, are your eyes bleeding from the amount of time you've spent scrutinising these new cars yet? Uh, yes, I've had to. I think this is the most I've ever used the zoom-in function on my laptop, and I'm there looking at tiny little wind trip bits and pieces and they're probably not even going to be there come barcelona so uh i'm just hoping that something i do with this week will be worthwhile i was i was going to say that uh, you're almost to the end of it but you're not you've still got seven cars left to uh, pour over in the coming week thanks ed for reminding me <laughs> <laughs> yesterday's digital chip wrappers <laughs> exactly exactly that's uh, what they very much are now and that was the voice of uh, my other guest Stuart coddling now you are the master of the pun, as people have, uh, have, have recognised in this podcast, but this is the first time I think we've had you on a podcast with JBL, who is also something of a of a pun enthusiast himself. So do you feel a bit threatened? Do you feel you need to raise your game? Not at all. And I'll tell you why. It's because JBL is a connoisseur of puns, and he's a little bit... I would describe him as my Matt Q for, for the digital end of the office. Now, at, at our end, I know that I, I can rely on any pun I come out with falling on fertile soil with Matt Q, he will laugh, he'll raise an eyebrow, and I'll, I'll think, yes, that's a pun that works. I also know that if I've said it quietly enough, I can slip up to the other end of the room, uh, manipulate the conversation at that end to drop the same pun, and I'll get a similar result from JBL. So it's like a double hit on the pun front. The danger is there, though, that that is the end of the room that people like myself and Scott Mitchell, also this podcast, and Freeman inhabit, and we tend to have slightly less patience. All yeah. I'm hearing is I'm getting Matt Q's sloppy second. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, we're likely to slide into, uh, certainly from my point of view, pun mediocrity because I'll get lazy. 
well, that's the, that's the danger. But uh, yeah, yeah, Matt Q, we've only heard him on a couple of podcasts, but I think we'll hear him on some uh, some more this year. So uh, for those who aren't so familiar with him, he will be uh, will be turning up. I should also add just to add the a bit of uh, a bit of texture to the to the visuals of this uh, for those who like to imagine what we're doing while they're listening to us. I don't know why anyone would do that. This is why but, you this is where you come over on Nicholas Parsons, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. And seated on my left. Exactly. So give people a sense of place. But the thing that stands out is that you do seem to be somewhat encased in flour like you've what's been going on yeah the the waitrose bread roll has left its trail that just i think it just means you're a messy eater just got to roll with it <laughs> you got to take your time <laughs> <laughs> oh dear they've united this is uh this is very bad news i think this is a good uh, a good indication that we should be moving on it definitely maybe <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'm very tempted just to end it now thanks for joining us no let's uh, let's get on well jbl the Renault rs19 as it's the first car we've been able to talk about on the podcast I guess it's a good chance to have a look at the 29 regulations, their interpretation of it. So what, what stands out, what catches the eye, and what can you tell us about the 29 regulations using using the Renault perhaps as a uh, as a guide? Yeah, so I think it's got the key trends, uh, as we'd like to say, and obviously that starts with the front wing. Um, we know that they can only have five elements maximum this year. Um, so obviously Renault have showcased that. It's... An intro from Renault's perspective, at least, it's a very interesting looking front wing, actually, because it sort of tapers in towards the point at which it attaches attaches to the end plate. So, what we know from this and the way that they've positioned the uh, the attachment points and the um, front wing adjustment flap is that, despite these regulations trying to limit the amount of outwash that all of these teams can produce, and hence improving the overtaking because it's not creating a massive cloud of dust in front of the cars behind them everybody's still trying to pursue that because they know that there are so many gains further down the car aerodynamically that this is just simply something that they can't do without and it's modern aerodynamics in formula one have led them up this path and they want to continue along that on along that line so that's a trend that renault have pushed that's uh something that they've continued with moving further back the car uh we can see that everybody's gravitating towards the side pod inlets that Ferrari are using. They're mounted very, very high up. They use the crash structures uh, on top and bottom as essentially aerodynamic gubbins and kit, if you like. And yeah, again, this is to just ensure that there's no blockage from the suspension components in front of them so that the engine gets a much more consistent supply of cooling. The radiators get more consistent supply of cooling. Uh, there's less worry with bits and pieces in front of the car creating some kind of vortical interference or anything like that really um and then moving further back uh we've got the larger rear wing obviously but everybody sort of gravitated towards using what's called swan neck wing mounts so rather than attaching to the bottom of the wing like has been done for years now everybody's creating the attachment points at the top on the pressure surface rather than the suction surface because it just essentially interferes with what the wing is trying to do less so i think those are the key things that everybody's going for um obviously with the new rules everybody's going to have to sort of change their barge board shape to try and ensure that tire wake is less of a problem when it comes to spilling air into the floor and that kind of thing so but those are the key sort of areas that i think everybody's gone for but yeah, Codders wants to say something. <laughs> uh, when I put my hand up, it's uh, usually the cue for uh, you can finish your thought and then I'll <laughs> add my thought afterwards. So, so you, don't you, think you, I'm interrupting. You show people behind the curtain as well. It's kind of <laughs> a signalling system. Normally we ask for smoke signals if someone wants to say something. I, I was done anyway. Okay. <laughs> we well, uh, my, my contribution was just going to be the, the thing that really jumped out at me from those launch images was how big uh, the the area of the main plane of the front wing is and surely we aren't going to see that when it actually hits the track because that looks like it's going to cause all sorts of problems well teams have used it differently which i'll go into in a sec but Renault, which is what i've got up on the screen in front of me at the moment they've come up with a system where they've got a massive main plate and then these four little other elements working in tandem with each other but then looking at the toro rosso and the Haas, they've split that main plane in two and that has become one of their elements essentially because when it splits at the neutral section in the middle of the wing that then counts as a enclosed face by the regulations and so that's a wing element so they've got a little bit less to play with here and there but i think as a holistic package maybe maybe they find it works a little bit better i'm not entirely sure 
it'll be interesting with the front wings to see how they do evolve because even though the regulations are quite prescriptive we've seen a few different front wings now none of them are really jaw-dropping in terms of what they've done they look like quite literal almost interpretations so it's going to be interesting i know they've closed a lot of the loopholes off and a lot of the things you can do but to see some of the things that may start to creep in certainly by melbourne and i think usually it's going to be methodologies and structures that are going to try and coax the airflow out for the old outwash uh, outwash effect i guess is the, is the key yeah it's almost like they're hiding something <laughs> never never do that <laughs> what do you make of the air intake because that's another thing that's very immediately different from a lot of the other cars we've seen on the Renault, um it's something that they used last year and um but yeah it's something that's very very strange on the Renault because it's oval shaped in and side on uh, i remarked the other day that it looked a little bit like the Brabham BT49 in its strangeness and we had Gary Anderson to run this by because when he was technical director of Jordan in 97, 98 yeah, 97 they, cars certainly had the round yeah had the oval wear and taking essentially that's just to ensure that the driver's head is at least a little as little interference as possible um, both Hulkenberg and Ricardo were very tall drivers so I guess that just helps them out a little bit there. I suppose if you're dealing with Ralph Schumacher's ego, then you need to take as many uh, <laughs> <laughs> tactics as possible to uh, steer the air around it. And, it, and it's a, a big thing there in terms of the way the air goes in, because if you get any sort of spillage, it can disrupt the rear wing. So there is actually a bit of an art to the shape of the the air intake. It's not you sort of assume it's just about how much air do you need to get into into the airbox, but actually there's a as with everything, maths underpins it, and there'll be there'll be a lot of work going on to make sure that's the right shape. Evidently, that that approach works for a runner. Well, Cotter's talking in general terms. When you look at this car, does this this strike you as the the machine that Renault needs to get to the front? Obviously, as a works team, lots of investment. The aim is to get to the front eventually. But does it feel like a big step change to you? It's it's quite tricky to say, isn't it? And I'm almost disappointed because they said uh, before the pictures were unveiled that it was entirely new apart from the power steering system and yet as with uh, all the other new cars we've seen well actually the others have just been livery launches apart from the house really um, uh, it's it's a case of spot the difference isn't it well a lot of these changes will be under the surface though yeah it's all think of how many of the components that make up a formula one car and different people give you different numbers but you get anything from five thousand to eleven thousand components being named most of them are invisible. From yeah, it's the, from packaging, isn't yeah. it? Which is the you know it's the invisible science of Formula One, isn't it? And we saw certainly Mercedes in the 2017 and beyond in, in the the new era of, of wider, heavier cars, saying that they'd begun that sort of design genre with in having a lot of space to play with inside the the volume of the car, and they sort of tried to optimize that and package it. But even last year, they weren't really quite as optimal as, as optimized rather as they thought they would be so uh you know may, 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 maybe it is very different under the skin we'll we'll find out but certainly this car and the toro rosso it's a very tricky game to spot the difference so far well inevitably because the the new rules aren't massive so it is although there's the, this new rule set it's it is an evolutionary car still and a lot of the stuff under the surface and everything will be will be yeah. similar and as, as JBL says, so much of the effort will have gone into uh, clawing back the uh, outwash effect that these new rules are supposed to be getting rid of. And we should say as well that, obviously, you have the car launch. Different teams have different things for their launch spec car, as it were. These It won't be until the cars run on track in Barcelona. The test starts on Monday, doesn't it? that we start to see a kind of proper running version of the car and you never know how much has changed and we see these launch images that have sometimes their sometimes their photos sometimes their uh, renders sometimes they're a bit of a mixture of the two so you never really know how much is new and how much is carried over and what's going to what's going to change on the track yeah and the the other the main thing, and certainly it's the team. It's something that no team actually wants to happen. Is that if if any team has a particular shocker and doesn't get enough running at the test, we might not actually see the definitive first spec of the car until the beginning of the European season. That's very true. Actually, I interviewed Martin Bukowski recently about the uh, about this new car, and he talked about all the new parts, as you said, everything apart from the power steering. And I did say, well, obviously that puts a little bit of pressure on testing because if you have got redesigned parts, just the Many of them just the normal unheralded bits and pieces that are in the car just to make it to make it go. They're not sort of sexy or exciting pieces. They're just the the, the nuts and bolts. Uh, literally, in in some cases, you want to tick everything off, show it's all working 
sensibly. So there is a bit of pressure on that first testing. It's one of you, JBL, in terms of if you've got lots of new bits, the, the philosophy being that they need to make a step change in all these bits and pieces to then push on towards the big teams. That does mean that when you're running the car, there's more things to tick off, more problems that could leave you sat in the garage wondering about why a wire's melting rather than pounding around. The problem is, especially when you've got lots of new parts that you're testing in unison, then it's very hard to decipher what's working and what's not. Again, you've got this holistic package, and especially if a part is being unreliable as well. Um, you've designed a part and it's not what you expected it to be. Um, that's just going to set the tone for everything else, and that part might be particularly unreliable. Maybe you fix it. And then you get down to another point in the road where another part is unreliable, but you didn't notice that because the first part was so unreliable. So testing is just essentially a long, drawn-out process of debugging what you've got, making sure it works, and making sure it's quick. Um, yeah, that's about the long and short of it, really. I must confess, I'm finding it difficult to get too excited about what we've seen from Renault so far. I'm not expecting them to catapult to the front. I'm expecting just a, a good step forward, but I'm hoping there's a bit of keeping their powder dry should we say, in terms of the, the, the step they're making. So you want to see that step forward in terms of area complexity. It, all the cars will, to a greater or lesser extent, look quite similar to the to the years before. But I think there's probably more to come. Yeah. You hope there is. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, looking at what Renault have given us, it's I, I, there's not, I, I genuinely have struggled to have something to say about it because I don't think it's anywhere near what they're going to turn up in testing with. And if that is their car, then it's more conservative than Theresa May, really. It's nonsense. You've you've filled two pages, I can see, over Mario's <laughs> shoulder. Uh, the, the design of the Renault Chef. It's, it's come to a second spread. That's four pages. <laughs> four, you've filled four pages despite having nothing to say on a subject. There is a lot of, there's a lot of uh, empty space there, though, in, in my defence. <laughs> That's creative space. Yeah, allowed people to look at the car, but the uh, yeah, we, I mean, that's an old sport mag which is out on Thursday, so there's a good chance to have a plug there. Thanks for that, uh, thanks for that, Goddess. Well, in fact, there is the the technical analysis on each car, and there's a, a piece with Martin Bukowski from the interview I, I mentioned. So, thank you for that opportunity you presented. Let's move on to Toro Rosso, Codders. James Key departed last season. He's soon to start work at McLaren, or not so soon, depending on yeah. where the latest negotiations are. He's not, certainly not uh, not on duty yet. Toro Rosso, they've made much of the fact they're more closely aligning with the sister team or parent team, whatever you want to call it, Red Bull Racing, of course, Red Bull Technologies and, and Milton Keynes. The STR14 is a product of that. So is it a little bit of a surprise that Toro Rosso is making such a big thing of becoming a B team? Because it is the most obvious B team in that it's owned by Red Bull. So it, it has been a B team effectively, or should have been. And there was a time before the customer car rules changed when they were running the, the same car as as Red Bull, but when you're looking at teams like Haas, Sauber thriving with running non-listed parts, etc., from other teams, it's a bit odd that Toro Rosso are going this way. I think there's a lot of threads to this now, Ed. As you say, there was a time when the Toro Rosso was basically a, a Red Bull with a different engine uh, up until sort of the the end of the previous decade. Well, the famous Italian Grand Prix winner in '08 that was a Red Bull yeah. with a yeah, Ferrari, Ferrari engine. Red Bull, and of course uh, they beat uh, beat Red Bull in the constructors' championship that year. Yeah, uh, which uh, said a lot about um, I don't know maybe how edgy the Red Bull car was. But uh, as you also remember from that time, the issue of customer cars was quite controversial, and there was a move a wider move away from that. Uh, in in the regulatory structure, so Toro Rosso became a constructor, and that became enshrined in Red Bull strategy to have two different teams that had separate um, uh, technical squads. And also, there has been some talk. Uh, there's been certainly firmer than rumours, but not actual confirmation over the past few years that Toro Rosso has been unofficially for sale. Not not like a fire sale, like the team formerly known as Force India was nearly caught up in last year but there was just a sort of um had anyone come along with enough money uh Dietrich Matic would probably have, have sold them off provided no they did. provided they guaranteed to stay in Fienza where they're based that I believe was a yeah, that, that stipulation, was stipulation. So they're, they're selling it as a team not a franchise if you see what I mean yeah so they the when you're doing that and if that is your strategy to build this team up to sell it then obviously it's incumbent upon you to have a technical team that is able to act as a constructor. So what we have now is over the past couple of years, Haas have built a 
very, very solid business model as a kind of a Ferrari B team using listed parts to construct a car. And, and that really has changed the, the paradigm, as, as people like to say, in management consultancy. So I, I think what Red Bull have done is had a look at their business model. They thought they're not going to have a buyer for Toro Rosso anytime soon. They may as well just roll it in as a kind of a B team once again. And that then makes it a you know they don't have to invest quite so much in it they've got fewer technical staff they need to pay so from a sort of 2019 formula one business model point of view it does make sense for toro rosso to go back to how it was in in sort of the late 2000s we should say the listed parts that you have to make you have to produce on the ipt your own monocoque all the aero exhaust system there's kind of seven or eight key things you have to you have to do but all the other bits you can you can take it's interesting though because the, the other side the other part of that as well is the approach james key took and i know there was a feeling across red bull that perhaps he they, he tries to do a little bit too much in-house and that there are a few shortcuts they could take by using more red bull stuff to then focus their efforts on what might be called performance yeah. drivers well, he, he, he learned gary anderson's knee didn't he so he's he's very much inculcated into that way of building a team that does everything yeah, very much so. And in fact, Gary said in his uh, in his piece that yeah, James Key does have the same approach that they yeah, have. I mean, the, the argument is that the more you do yourself, the more control you've got, the more potential there is. But it's that that thing of if you do everything yourself, you need to do everything yourself basically to be a winning team. But Toro Rosso is not really in the business of being a winning team at the moment. It can't be before no, it can, their before brand it can... is predicated upon uh, raking in a bit of prize money and being yeah, an yeah. a another. Uh, uh, billboard for the red bull branding and also before you can become a winning team you need to win the midfield effectively don't you before you can then try and jump up and i kind of feel like toro has underachieved a bit over this which is a shame because i think james key's very very good actually i think he's an accomplished technical director but maybe could have played a bit different and i think that's one of the reasons why toro has been floating around sort of more seventh eighth in the constructors than fighting for the fourth fifth six that they'd they'd be keen on uh, let's try and have a look at a bit of detail jbl it's interesting i guess it's not only a new car but it's also because of the ties to red bull and the honda engine we're all looking for little hints and cues as to what that might tell us about the the red bull which is revealed on uh, on wednesday uh, so check out oldsport.com for, for images and analysis of that when it uh, when it breaks cover drawing any conclusions in it and things you might want to hold up as a potential sneak preview of the red bull well, I'll first start off at the front wing because, again, that's a very important part. And if you said to a designer, okay, could you very quickly come up with a sketch of what a 2019 wing will look like? Toro Rosso would probably come up with it. It's just very, very clear cut. Five elements, pretty much all of equal length, apart from the top one, which is very, very thin. Uh, flat end plates, some vortex uh, tunneling and uh, foot plates. It's very, very simple, but I don't know if we're going to end up seeing that in testing or not, because it just looks like, oh, that's a wing. Further down, It, the... it feels like the sort of starting point front wing, doesn't it? Your, exactly. Almost your first iteration. Of course, by the time they they race, it's normally not the first iteration, it's multiple iterations down the, down the line. It exactly. looks a lot like the ones that were tested by a couple of the teams last season. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's where it's further down the car where all the interest lies, uh, especially around the bargeboard geometry. They've come up with this, essentially three plates, all linking together just to improve the flow attachment. The last one being particularly large. So, can you just explain flow attachment for those not familiar? Oh, sure. So, um, so I'm sending, I'm sending in digressions <laughs> on digressions. Sure. So, essentially, when you have a very big plate, a flat plate or something in uh, in some airflow, at some point it's going to detach from the surface, and so and that's a stall, basically. In yeah, exactly. Terms. So and behind that you have the boundary layer and then essentially you create a turbulent zone and then in that you just get essentially a load of vorticity and uh turbulence and that's not really something you can do a whole lot with and then you just essentially lose all of your your efficiency or if it's on a wing for example any ability to create downforce whatsoever so by breaking it up into smaller things you can guarantee yourself a little bit more attachment but at the cost of maybe a little bit of outright performance or something that you could achieve with that wingspan or with that piece of bodywork size but with that with the barge boards here the idea is to direct flow around the front of the side pods around the inlets and bring it into uh towards the rear of the car so 
essentially these barge boards have had to be split up that's why we see so many tiny little bits and pieces because their uh, teams are trying to keep airflow attached and Toros have taken a very pragmatic view to that and have just essentially come up with okay here's three different pieces these are all going to link together um, and that's just taking a very very extreme way of driving airflow around the side of the car and then at the ends of these barge boards there are these tiny little dagger sections almost that essentially just pick up tire wake and drive it out the way work with the barge boards as well and then just going further down the car as well um, the bodywork is very very tight we again see the Ferrari style inlets we see a big inlet at the top uh, above the driver's head but the closed bodywork the sort of shrunken packaging suggests that Honda have made a lot of strides with regards to their cooling so even though we've perhaps said is there anything we can see from the lead Red Bull squad and what they're going to do um, you know I think after the year of Toro Rosso essentially debugging the Honda engines for their use we're going to see much tighter packaging we're going to see Red Bull with essentially a concept that they've been pushing with uh, Renault before with Adrian Newey's love for shrunken packaging that's just going to continue I think so well, they're always going to push that I remember last year chatting to Christian Horn and he was saying yeah we're really going to let Honda have the space to do what they need to do etc and work with them I just say well yeah but Adrian's not going to you know he's not going to be relaxed and he will be pushing on it he sort of conceded yeah it's always give and take isn't it the because that you need to cool the car you, but any airflow you're using for cooling is not being used to generate downforce. It's, there's a finite amount of amount of air. You're trying to keep yeah. as much of Remember it. Remember the under size control. zero yeah. McLaren in the exactly, first exactly. Honda so year. It's, but... a, it's a fine balance. That's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because that can have an impact on not just reliability. People always think it's a binary thing, cooling versus reliability. But it's also the question of if you're a bit marginal on cooling, you have the performance available in the car, but you might have to manage it more. And actually, Mercedes have been very good at this over over recent years in terms of you have it maybe a little bit tighter than ideal, but you know you have to manage it in many race situations. But that means that come qualifying, bang, you can go. So I guess that's the the tightrope that Red Bull and Honda are trying to walk. Yeah, definitely. It's Ultimately, it's always going to be down to compromise at the end of the day. There are going to be reliability engineers who would love it if it was just a huge, bulky engine. And there are engineers who are working with the cooling who want it to be as small as possible, as heat-sensitive as little as possible, and just, yeah, it is essentially compromised. But we're in an age now where teams and uh, engine suppliers can work together on this. It's not like the 90s where you buy a customer engine and go, okay, this is your cooling requirement. Design a car to that or don't. Who cares? We're just supplying the engine. So it's a partnership now on anything. Or you can you can get entirely the wrong figures. In, in John Barnard's book, he uh, is very outspoken, I think, about the... Uh, 95 96 or 97 ferrari which had quite ray a rakish side pod treatment and uh, it didn't work because he had been given entirely the wrong figures for cooling requirements from the engine department they'd got their maths wrong <laughs> but wouldn't admit it because of course this was ferrari in the 1990s uh, a bit of politics uh, politics at play but but it is interesting the how these trade-offs work and i think Red Bull and Honda, it is a it is a works team now, although it's not a works team in the same way that that Mercedes is, that that Renault is, that, that Ferrari is. So I kind of feel there's a lot that's about whether Honda can deliver and really deliver a, a Mercedes Ferrari threatening engine. You know, they've got to the point where they're in the similar ballpark matching just ahead just behind Renault as of as of last year. But also, it's about how Red Bull works with them and how they work with Red Bull, and that's going to be at the heart of it, isn't it? The the communication between the two as they work towards a package that can fight for world championships, which they're probably not going to start off with initially, but they they want to get to in a year, two years at the most. They certainly have a good conjurer for that in Pierre Gasly, who's worked with Honda before, and so when he get, goes into the Red Bull squad and starts with them, he can immediately just go in and go, okay, this is what Honda were doing. This is how we carry over. And obviously they'll be able to get data and stuff from Toro Rosso, no problem. But he'll be able to give the management a little bit of a, an idea on how to work best with Honda engineers, what they're going to want, what how they respond best. Because McLaren got that so horribly wrong, Red Bull need to get that absolutely right. Yeah, is there, there's a 
deal of professional etiquette you need to go through when you're dealing with a Japanese company. And Toro Rosso got that very right because they had more people who were experienced in in, in dealing with, with with Japanese people. Whereas Hon, um, sorry, McLaren treated it like any other relationship. You got the impression, and they ended up rubbing each other up the wrong way because the, the, that is just not the way. To, to deal with a Japanese company, you, you need to sort you do, of expect you do speak time to build experience in. there as well. It's one of uh, your yeah, many yeah. former jobs. We often talk about your seven years in the catering industry, but you've also had some experience with uh, corporate Japan. I did indeed work as the editor of a Toyota magazine. So everything we did had to be approved by the overseas marketing department. And it took a very long time to not only to percolate its way up the food chain, but also uh, and anything that was involved in any of the business units would be sent as a courtesy to those business units units and you had to wait until everyone was was pleased and satisfied with it before you could proceed now what that does build in is a lot of time lag into developments but it ensures at the same time that everybody is then in theory happy and on the same page with it so there's a little bit of give and take involved in that you just have to be aware of what the ground rules are so what's your overall verdict jbl are you excited about toro so they're quite an easy team to kind of put to the back of your mind because they are the red bull second team they're not a team that we're used to seeing. You know, they're a marginal points team normally at best. So, is it going to be? Is there any reason to expect them to overachieve this year? Um, I am interested to see what they'll do um, because I think that the last time he was there, Danny Kvyat got quite a rough deal, and it'd be great to see how he bounces back from that. Um, Alex Albon as well. Really interested to see how he does in F one. So it would be really nice for Toro Rosso to have a good car that's capable of uh, essentially work on the path they worked on in the last few years have a car that's capable of challenging for the big points and give the drivers enough of a chance to be able to prove themselves or not prove themselves because we saw last year you know Gasly seemed to be something pretty special Hartley was a little bit short of the mark so we could sort of gauge that so anything that would be able to help us gauge where Kvyat is where Albon is would be a bonus really so yeah it would be easy to forget about them sometimes but yeah i think they'll just continue on their little path as they've always done i think consistency would be good to see from them as well i know last year it was emphasized it was magnified by the fact that midfield was so close so you know on a bad weekend you could be 17th on a good weekend you could be seventh but over the years we have seen toro rosso be a little bit erratic shall we say so i'd be interested to see a little bit more consistency in that regard and i know obviously the types of drivers are a little bit less experience often so you expect to do it but that that's what I'd like to see. Should we talk about Haas? Let's go down the uh the JBL route again. Now it's the, the Haas VF nineteen. It's the first car to appear at its new black and gold livery. We don't expect many surprises from this this team. It's heavily allied with Ferrari. It is a it is a sort of a B team in that regard. It's a customer team perhaps is the easy way of putting it. They're using as many non listed parts as they possibly can. Delara focusing on doing the aero kits, using the the Ferrari wind tunnel, etc. So, you getting excited about anything with that car? Was there anything that surprised you? And we should also maybe address the things that people always say about that it's just a Ferrari because there's some areas in the past where you could say it was, but you know, even last year there were areas where it wasn't going down the Ferrari path. Definitely, there are there are visual cues. I think obviously it's a bit difficult to tell from the renders that were provided because it's a black car on a black background. So they've not been particularly helpful with that. Um, but what was very interesting, we saw this in the launch spec car as well, was that the front wing is very, very... It's a lot more sculpted than perhaps the Renault and Toro Rosso is in some respect. I mean, the Renault yeah, is sculpted, but in a different manner, I guess. Haas seemed to look like they're managing the um, the vortex that's produced from the end of the neutral section, either under the wing a little bit more um the old y250 yeah I, I was always refer to i was loath to use that term uh, it's difficult isn't it? because you can't use it in isolation but then when you reference what it is because it's refer the, the 250 and well the y refers to the sort of center line of the car and the 250 is the is the the distance either side if you like so that's that's why it's named it's the, a, the y yeah. can also mean why bother yeah exactly <laughs> but, but it's because it's basically the it's the vortex that kind of fires up the middle of the car effectively yeah it? it's Un- underneath yeah it keeps the tire weight from the sides of the car it does a lot um works with the barge boards works with the bottom of the inlet so it's got a lot going for it uh, as vortexes go and so has to done their best to manage that but what was interesting was that the the end plates are 
very very extreme i think to the extremes that can be done within these regulations but also there's the foot plate on the outside of the wing that only that stops about two uh three quarters of the way along um so i assume at some point in in their development has to come up with a, a full foot plate and thought actually no this can't really be directed out very well why don't we stop it and then use the rest of the end plates just nudge that outside around the front wheels and so that's the design they've happened upon there are a lot of things that are very similar to last year's car and by association ferrari uh so again those inlets um a three-way split inlet at the at the top of the car above the driver's head and downward facing t-wing as well at the back um i think that's the only car we've seen with the t-wing so far actually um that regulations after the shark fins were banned the FIA tried to get rid of, and they go, actually, we can just still put them further down the car. And also, of particular note, are the rear wing end plates, which follow on from what McLaren did a couple of years ago, which was those downward strakes. They essentially cut out a bit of the the rear wing end plate. And Haas have just come up with that and come up with an extreme version of that. There's like nine serrations. It looks like the inside of a crocodile's mouth at the back. So it'll be interesting to see how that essentially manages airflow at the rear of the car what it does or at least what i understand it does it kind of redistributes the pressure underneath the wing it creates a a little bit of a vortex structure that can just essentially just fold outside the car again redistributes the pressure and so hopefully um because we know that ferrari used it last year the same concept and they found it very very difficult to work with so Haas will be hoping that it works for them more than anything and it's a big year for Haas, isn't it? Because they fourth fastest car last season, fifth in the championship. There's a lot of teams you can make an argument for why they should be ahead, but they're that they they need to be able to to at least fight for the same sort of position and be near the front of the midfield. So it's it's interesting to see they've. I mean, last year we said the cars caught was quite a basic step. It feels like they tried to be a little bit more ambitious, if you like, with the aero of this car. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Well, everything's just sort of it's a leaner, meaner machine. The side pods are a little bit more uh, sucked in here and there. It's just, it, it's tightened up. It is got a few hallmarks similar to last year's car, but it's just uh, yeah, it's just essentially a bigger, better version. That's what it needs to be in Formula One. Otherwise, you just go backwards. Of course, it's not just the the car technically, Codders. The the big talking point is the new sponsor, Rich Energy. They're clearly very, very good at getting column inches and making a splash. The man behind that's William's story. Not backward in coming forward when it comes to setting targets. He's talking about Rich Energy and Haas taking on Red Bull. Obviously, Red Bull, very strong F1 team, very strong energy drinks ban. So some big talk and obviously a scepticism about the, about the company and what is Rich Energy. And he said that doubting to paraphrase doubting them is like doubting the moon landings <laughs> yeah happens. so um so what what do you make of this whole and, it, and, it, and it, i'd say this in a positive way it's a circus and of course a brand sponsors to get coverage and to get its name out there and rich energy obviously is trying to build up so it's not a bad thing fundamentally in itself but what do you make of it all well formula one is a circus isn't it uh we we live in hope that uh this fellow doesn't end up as one of the clowns, but uh, he certainly adds to life's rich tapestry, doesn't he? And only a year ago, he was positioning himself as a potential buyer for Force India. Obviously, that came to nothing. It's quite an interesting scenario because there have been some people speculating that Gene Haas was uh, looking for an exit strategy uh, for his team, having built it up into a, a going concern. I suppose let's let's close it off one by one what is rich energy they are apparently based in richmond take their name from that and the the logo besides bearing a very very great resemblance to the uh, white mountain bikes uh, logo which is currently the subject of legal action it's apparently uh, inspired by the the stags in richmond park which is slightly unfortunate timing because uh, i popped up to richmond park yesterday for, as part of my lunchtime run and it's the annual cull where uh, all deer in richmond park quake with fear between the hours of 4 30 in the afternoon and 7 uh, 30 in the morning so the, the other thing we should probably say about Rich Energy is that not very many of us have actually seen a can of it out in the wild. Uh, I did see someone drinking a can of it at the Autosport show. It does exist, but I think if we're going to be strictly accurate, it is not on the shelves to the extent that 
red bullies now as to william story himself um i've looked into his track record and he is quite an interesting character in his presences in company's house he's listed as a computer consultant and one of his companies was uh, an it consultancy called trifan technology limited which was has just been dissolved uh, as of january the 20 something 2019 as a result of a winding up order placed by a creditor in 2016 so he is He's had various other involvements, uh, not well, we should, in the we computing world. sort of thing into context. Normally, if you look around company's house, you do find a lot of such things. In itself, that's not totally out there, shall we say. Um, yeah, uh, we should probably say that when you form a company, there are legal obligations, one of which is you register at company's house. You have to file annual accounts, annual statements with shareholdings, etc. And if you don't comply with that, then... Uh, you are subject to what's known as a compulsory strike-off notice and after a while you are compulsorily struck off and your assets revert to the Crown. So Her Majesty the Queen get them. And quite a few of of the companies he's been involved in have uh, had that happen to them after not filing um, their accounts accounts for whatever reason. There was... uh, so there's some some quite interesting stuff in his background. He's been involved in sports. Uh, he first came onto the sporting radar um, five or six years ago as part of his involvement in the world of boxing. Uh, he had some involvement with the Hennessy Sports Organisation. That's Mick Hennessy, who is Tyson Fury's uh, manager, amongst other things. And uh, William Story was sort of appeared on the radar as the manager of a guy called Frank Bullioni, who was the British lightweight boxing champion, but uh, probably better known as uh, as a handsome chap with a six-pack who was marketed as uh, a bit of a clothes horse. And one of William Story's companies uh, is called Danielli Style Limited, of which uh, Frank Bullioni was a co-director. And the aim of that company appears to have opened to, to be to open a a clothing a, a network of clothing stores with some sort of clothing that came to nothing it uh, was founded in june 9 2013 filed accounts once and was dissolved by compulsory strike off in august 2016 so i think what we have to say is that he's somebody who talks the talk but very often he, he doesn't appear to have a very a tremendously successful track record in business so yeah, he's not short on bluster, uh, and I, I wish him the best of luck. I, I hope it works out, and obviously some money has changed hands. There's talk that there are uh, multi-billionaires uh, behind Rich Energy, but when you go into their accounts in Companies House, they don't actually have that much money in the bank. now. Which isn't completely unusual, yes, though, because share, shareholder that, investment and injections, yeah. are, there's, there's many, many companies. We, we, need, we need to be clear that you can't you can't judge a company entirely based on what it's filed in Companies House. And we should add that those are slightly outdated. Right? They're the most recent Companies House records, yeah. but they're not today's accounts, if you see what Ex- I mean. Exactly. Well, you, you basically, you, you, you always file your previous year's accounts, uh, and the, the the last accounts filed were filed last year. So we're talking about figures from two years ago when basically it was still a startup. So who knows? It might have lots more money in the bank. There's an awful lot we don't know, except that it's colourful logos on a car. So uh, we, we live in hope and we shall see. Well, the important thing is you do want to see F1 teams getting sponsorship. You mentioned Gene Haas's interest. And I know there was a point where Gene Haas was frustrated that having made the commitment that it was difficult to get sponsors on board. Ultimately, even for a team that is available, obviously it was quite happy to change its change its look completely for a, for a sponsor. So yeah, that's a dangerous precedent for Formula One, isn't it? That teams are scraping around for sponsors. You look at Williams, who have a, a startup as their key sponsor, which is interesting. Uh, McLaren, who've uh, got is it, is it a chocolate drink or something that, that they've just taken on. So it seems to be various things that you wouldn't previously have considered to have pockets deep enough to warrant space on the side of a Formula One car are all of a sudden uh, taking out ever greater proportions. Well, I will play devil's advocate here and say perhaps with regards to the seeming dearth of sponsors on the grid, this is the time now where if you've got a business and you want to advertise and you want to show some kind of relation to perhaps what is the fastest sport on earth what better way than to claim a little bit of advertising space on a formula one car 
I mean, it's not it's not cheap, but um, we know that Williams' title sponsorship deal with Martini was perhaps only fifteen million dollars or something like yeah, that. So teams are willing to sell advertising space to not particularly high bidders. Um, it's it such as the world in which we live, and obviously we go through all of these launches. We look at all these sponsors. We go, we, I have no idea who that is. Isn't that rather the point that they go, okay, we want to get our name out there and in a few years we'll be known as that company that was on the Haas for a couple of months or so. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no. Take, take Rocket, for instance. If you're a startup company operating in a very, very, very competitive telecoms field, then what better way of getting your name out there than being very prominently on the side of a Formula One car? And we should also say that when it comes to what's being talked about and these race objects, I mean, it's quite it's quite nice that people. It's much better than going to a a launch and then you get oh, it's our new sponsor and there's great synergies between Formula One and this yachting company and it's just all nonsense, isn't it? It's just it's just words that get chucked around. So at least when you come in and you see, okay, you've got this company that it's not quite right to call it start, but it's still kind of in that startup phase, isn't it? Rich, rich energy of getting yourself out there, but you kind of think, well, actually, in a way. At least you're willing to put yourself out there and, and make some noise and, and create some uh, some interest in it. Uh, and all you can do is judge by what happens. Clearly, a payment's been made. There have been times where first payments haven't been followed by others. But as as it stands now, as far as we know, Rich Energy have done everything they've said they're going to do related to Haas. So we have to take them on, on what they do now from now, don't we? Yeah, we, we'll, we'll just see what happens. And if the branding is still on the car at the end of the year, then that will be a very good uh, indication that the money has changed hands. And you never know, we might start seeing cans of this stuff appear uh, on the shelves of local retailers or even being offered as a mixer in the sort of nightclubs I'm too old to go into. I've got to admit, I'm not a big fan of energy drinks, so I think I will uh, no, avoid no. The smell of them makes me want to vomit. But, yes, uh, yeah, that's that's a gen- that's generically. That's not just on the. Yeah. Also, you know, when feeling energised, I tend to want to stab anyone in the eye who I hear using the word synergies in the marketing context. So it's probably best I don't drink them. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly uh, certainly a lot of that. But you know, good good for Haas. They're they're a team that it's easy to underestimate in a way because everyone's getting excited about what Renault can do and can can McLaren climb back up the order. But Haas is a team that has done very well since it's come into Formula One. Last year was a big step forward for it. They became a much more consistent team. If you look at their performances in 16 and 17, they were mathematically the most inconsistent team if you looked at the fluctuations of their performance. Last year, they were pretty consistently good. I think Mexico was another one was the, the circuit that they really struggle with generally. But in general, they were consistent. I think Roman Grosjean was in Q3 16 times, more than any of the other drivers outside the top, top three teams. So they're becoming a, an increasingly formidable team. You could argue that but for a bit of brain fade earlier in the season, they would have finished high, wouldn't they? You had, they should have finished fourth. Yeah, they had their problems in Australia. They had Rogro uh, having his enormous shunt uh, as a result of brain fade, possibly, in Spain. So, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's also Baku crashing under the safety car. and Yeah, the, the Italian Grand Prix disqualification, of course, for the shape of the... Uh, the, the shape of an aero profile, for a better word that they should have uh, <laughs> should have changed. So, yeah, interesting, interesting for Hassan. There's this big debate going on about should you have B teams, should you be allowed, they're not technically a B team, but should you have these teams that are aligned? But it is good for Formula One that there is at least a way. You know, five years ago, you just said, well, any F1 team that comes in is doomed. Look at what happened to the last batch. But Haas have found a model, it's legal, and they've made it work. And now Haas is a team that's credible that you can you can say maybe they can be fighting for best of the rest. And that's, that's pretty impressive. Well, of course. Um, uh, and it's, if you look at MotoGP, which... You know, you see that you have satellite teams using customer bikes and that kind of thing. I don't personally, I don't see an issue with having B teams using as many non-listed parts as possible because Formula One is so expensive. And if you want to get a team in that says, okay, you have to design everything, and it will cost you, I don't know, two hundred million dollars, and people are just going to go, no. Yeah, <laughs> and if, if it works, it works, doesn't it? And maybe Formula One is at a position where this is the only realistic way to ensure it carries on until such time as uh, more rigorous ways can be found of squeezing the, the, the cost genie back into the bottle, which is something that won't happen overnight. 
Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I mean, that argument's going to go on and on all season. Obviously, it's just it's just un- unavoidable. But the key is you want as many competitive teams on the grid as as possible. And although Haas isn't a front running team, it's a it's a strong midfielder. So uh, so good luck to them. Um, we've got far more launches to come. We've got Red Bull Mercedes Racing Point on Wednesday, McLaren Thursday, Ferrari Friday, and then testing gets going on. Uh, on Monday, our, our podcast schedules a little this is, bit. This is like a Craig David song, isn't it? <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the plan. Our, our next podcast will be out sometime after the Ferrari launch on Friday. This week's gone a bit unusual. We'll we'll have regular podcasts with uh, with Gary Anderson from from the first test next week. So um, yeah, there's uh, there's plenty of content. Check out also, you know, all loads of uh, technical videos on these cars. Uh, JBL has been. Has been chatting with Glenn Freeman on our uh, on our video series. So if you check on allsport.com, motorsport.com, on our YouTube channel, there's loads of uh, further insight there where you can actually point to images that you can see rather than painting a picture. You painted a picture brilliantly, JBL. Even though I'm kind of sitting next to you and I can see the pictures in front of you. Although right now the picture in my head is of Ed coming in and in his bid to channel Craig David wearing a tea cosy on his head. <laughs> Well, I think in this podcast format, at least you don't have to look at my face for a little bit, which is nice. Um, but yeah, no, um, I'll bring, if we're doing another podcast this week, I'll bring another, I'll bring a tea cosy in Fred to wear. <laughs> yeah, good plan. Well, that's, that's uh, planned for Friday. Any any last minute puns from either of, uh, either of you two? I think we've done enough puns, haven't we? Yeah. We've stretched the patience of the audience far enough. I think we're both a pair of has beans. Oh, dear. Uh, well, uh, on that note... Um, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Stuart Codling and Jake Boxall. Like, do head to autosport.com. Loads of news and analysis on the latest F1 cars and also from the rest of the world of motorsport. Autosport magazine out on Thursday. It's got a, it's got the Renault on the cover. It's got tech analysis of, of all the cars. Also have a look at sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and motorsport news. If you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Just Because Deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast. From Mickey D's? From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.